completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? Welcome to Unbalanced Views, <laughs> a mostly American history podcast. Each week, I, Brian Bradyhoff, will read an amazing story to my friend, Mike Ajarino, who is completely ignorant. <laughs> to the subject, damn it. Not, not in general. <laughs> Mike, uh, what's, uh, what's your sunshine this week? Well, my sunshine of the week... Um, my sunshine of the week is that it is getting nice out. The weather is broke, I believe. We're no longer having cold spells. I think it's going to be now smooth sailing. Okay. The Orioles are competitive, <laughs> way, way, way more competitive than I thought they'd be. Sure. And, sure. Um, you know, that's kind of right I now mean, my sunshine. The season's not over in May, and that's something. My my, uh, my My sunshine this week is uh, is the opposite of that. It rained tonight, and I am surprisingly could not be happier. My uh, my my whole my yard is uh, is dead. I've uh, I need to cut the backyard, but I won't cut it because it's all just burning up because we haven't had any rain. So we got a storm today. My yard was all like uh, flooded and pond, you know, water pooling all up over it. So so I'm pretty excited. Well, I'm not excited about having to cut the grass. I am excited that uh, that I'm not just going to have uh, just a, a plain dirt yard um mm-hmm. that, the, that the dog can then just track dirt back in the house just every time she goes out so i'm excited about that and ella has her soccer tournament tomorrow and a little rain will make the, the, the field a little nicer to play on so uh, those are my my sunshines good all right so mike mike yes, <laughs> our story today takes place in a little place you might have heard of Called the United States of America. I have. Greatest country on the planet Earth. Okay. Uh, It took place during a time (laughs) of great social and cultural upheaval. 1960s, I'm guessing. A a divisive populist president led Americans to shift their traditional political allegiances. It brought many Americans to the electoral system for the first time. Mm -hmm. This president, despite his tremendous personal wealth, was an expert at speaking to and for the common man, and his presidency was fueled by anti-elite sentiments. In this era, technological innovation fueled rapid economic growth, and Americans consumed new forms of media that were dominated by sensationalist news coverage that focused on crime, scandals, and gossip. Cheap consumer goods flooded the market, and massive reduction in transportation costs opened new markets within the country and overseas. This also led to a mass movement of people uh, into seeking a better life in interior regions of the country. At the same time, urban populations swelled with a wave of immigrants that was changing the demographics of the country and causing alarm for some nativist Americans. 60s. Trade unions went on strike for better wages as middle-class reformers worried about the moral decay they saw all around them. It was a time of economic precarity for many, but presented great opportunities for the middle class to open new businesses and expand existing ones. 70s. 
It was also a time when social reformers challenged dominant beliefs about the roles of women and African-Americans in American society, pushing for more equality in both cases. The story occurs at the end of nearly two decades of financial turmoil brought on by wars and rampant real estate speculation. Finally, it was a time of great spiritual revivalism as religious groups emerged to take prominent roles in government and in efforts to reform society. So given all these clues, I want to ask, have you figured out when our story takes place? I'm you guessing sixties to seventies, but got a rich, that's, that's rich populist president. You've got. Uh, I, I'm thinking right there that that clue. I'm I'm guessing Kennedy. Mm-hmm, that would mm-hmm. be my guess is Kennedy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and um, social change, all that stuff. I, I was guessing sixties, late sixties, mm-hmm. wars. Yep, clearly, yep, yep. I think mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. that time period. So I'm guessing. I'm going to say. Do I have to guess the exact decades? Because I would yeah, guess just, late sixties, but maybe just, going into seventies. What? Uh, you're you're very close. It is not the eighteen sixties as you have suggested. No, it's not eighteen sixties. Oh, nineteen sixties. Oh no, yes. you're way you're way off. Oh gosh, I thought you were talking about the eighteen sixties. I, I I just thought you misspoke when you said Kennedy. No, of course this is a story about the eighteen thirties. That's right, oh. the eighteen thirties. All right. Okay. okay. It is a story about sex, violence, and religion. Is a story of a man who, calling himself Joshua the Jewish minister, discussed theology in Ohio near the banks of Lake Erie with another prophet of the time. That prophet, Joseph Smith. You ever heard of him? Joseph Smith? Yes. Um, non-athlete Joseph Smith? No. Joseph Smith was about to open the first Mormon temple shortly after he met our prophet oh. Joshua. Yes. It is okay. the story of a carpenter who was mocked as jumping Jesus by co-workers, but later transformed into the reincarnated apostle Matthias, prophet of God and founder of the kingdom at Mount Zion near Sing Sing Village in New York. This Matthias was also known as Jesus Matthias and Robert Matthias, but his given name was Robert Matthews, and he was the central figure in a great sensationalist scandal reported on breathlessly by the first truly mass media. During his arrest and trial for murder, swindle, and assaulting his daughter, sordid tales of Matthias's kingdom captivated the minds of New Yorkers in Andrew Jackson's America. There's your populist president. All right. Gotcha. So there you go. It's a story about the 1830s. But before we get there, we have to start in 1788. We're moving backwards. 1788 was the year 736 prisoners arrived in Botany Bay and established Australia as a penal colony. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart completed his symphonies 39, 40, and 41, his final symphonies before he died. New York ratified the Constitution. He died at 32. Uh, Or 33. Something like that. Yeah, in his his 30s. New York uh, ratified the Constitution. No, he was in his 30s, for sure. Okay. New York ratified the Constitution by a very close vote of 30 to 27. It it was the year that King George III went mad. The romantic poet, Lord Byron, was born. George Washington would be unanimously selected, well, sort of, as the first constitutional president of the United States. He won a whopping 39,000 votes. Wow. 
Yes. In That's a amazing. Country of about 3.9 million. He got 39,000 votes and one unanimous. Why is vote. that? No one voted or what? No one was allowed no to vote. Because like nobody was allowed <laughs> to vote. Like that's. Okay. Vote. Yeah. Nobody was. Gotcha. You know, you had to own um, every state made their Only own the wealthy in. voted or something. Yeah. You need to, gotcha. own, a lot, you need to own a lot of property. Um, and, and a couple states didn't vote. Like North Carolina, Rhode Island hadn't ratified the Constitution yet. New York didn't vote because they ratified, but they couldn't figure out how they were going to choose electors. So, I mean, you know, so there were a few states, but still, uh, he won unanimously. But if you actually go and you look, like electoral votes went to a lot of other candidates, but it was just sort of, um, to, he, he lost two votes, but they basically just decided to abstain because they wanted it to be unanimous. So like two people that were not going to vote for him were like, well, we just won't vote. We'll just, you know, so they wanted it to be, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But regardless. Okay. That's, that's the thing. Okay. So anyway, so all of that happened in 1788 and in Washington County, New York, Robert Matthews was born to a Scots immigrant family. They lived in a Scots immigrant community in Cambridge, clustered about a mile from the village proper in a community they named Coila. Residents were strict Calvinist Presbyterians, and the strictest among them were called anti-Burger secessionists. Robert Matthews' mother was apparently among that group. So for a little context, and we're going to go back even further before we get back into the present, I promise we're not going to keep moving backwards. This is, this is the last back, well, next to last backwards trip. Okay. <laughs> so for some context, um, uh, in the 1730s and 40s, um, so I'm not going to get into the weeds about this. This is the, the Great Awakening. But the main things to understand are, um, number one, the revivalism spread by uh, itinerant preachers. That is like preachers that didn't have home churches. They, they, they went town to town and preached, right? So they would give sermons in these large public areas, uh, which kind of had a democratizing impact on people. Churches at the time pretty much had pew assignments that were based on status and wealth, right? Like the richer you were, the closer to the front you would sit. But in public areas, of course, it's like first come, first serve. So the rich and the poor would be, you know, might be sitting right next to each other, standing right next to each other in these sermons. And while that doesn't seem like a big deal, um, it was very unusual. I mean, this is the early 18th century and those divisions between rich and poor, between the landowning and non-landowning class are, are really significant. And this is one of those things that actually contributes to the American Revolution. It's one of the things that makes it possible. Anyway. Uh, number two, they preached uh, what's called an experiential religion. That is, they talked about the importance of experiencing a new birth in the heart. So this is important because then people who weren't um, schooled, who weren't educated, could also fully participate. They just had to feel it. You know, right? They had to feel something inside. And number three, evangelical preachers preached to everyone, free, enslaved, male, female, rich, poor. The message was egalitarian, right? Now, granted, the message was usually something about the universal wretchedness of humanity and God's unknowable will. Uh, Jonathan Edwards famously wrote a, a um, sermon at this time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he basically described humanity as like, or God, like holding humanity by a, a thread over the fires of hell, you know, almost like taunting us. So these weren't like happy messages, mind you, but they were fire and brimstone. Uh, but at the same time, they were egalitarian. And that's the important thing. Okay. All right. In Scotland, the Great Awakening failed to, to sort of create the explosive growth of new denominations like Baptists and, and Methodists, but instead it called, uh, caused a renewed religious enthusiasm. It probably inspired or at least had something to do with the first secession in the Church of Scotland. And this is basically about patronage laws. So every church had to have a, a wealthy patron who would appoint ministers. 
And this new patronage law basically gave the right to landlords and church elders if the patron didn't choose quickly enough. So congregations were very upset that they would have no say in who their preacher might be. Uh, Ebenezer Erskine, the most famous of these seceders, preached, quote, I can find no warrant from the word of God to confer the spiritual privileges of his house upon the rich beyond the poor, whereas by this act, the man with the gold ring and the gay clothing is preferred unto the man with vile raiment and poor attire. So 1742, 20 congregations seceded because they did not want to, uh, they didn't want to follow this law, this patronage law. And then within just three years, those 20 congregations had grown to 45. So so understand, right, these secessionists, these guys that left, that split the Church of Scotland over this issue, these are uncompromising men, right? Um, And very quickly, because they are uncompromising men, there was dissent among them. Um, So... There was a a rebellion in 1715 called the Jacobite Rebellion, where a Catholic king, they're they're trying to put a Catholic king back on the crown. Uh, Protestants win, and they decide after that that they're going to keep Catholics out of power for good. So they create something called the Bird, out of political office, for good. Uh, So they create something called the Burgess Oath. Um, A Burgess, or a Burger, rather, is like, it's where you get the word, like, um, the, the suffix for something like Pittsburgh. Right? right. It basically just is like um, the prominent men of the community. They're the landowners. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Yep. 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 It, it, they're, you know, um, not, I wouldn't exactly call them lords per se, but they're kind of like that. They're big dogs. Yes, 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 yes. So anyway, uh, the Burgess Oath required uh, all the sort of leaders of the communities. And keep in mind, you know, the leaders of the communities are the ones that found the church. And they, you know, church and state are very tied together in England. Right. The head of the Church of England is the king, the head of the Church of Scotland is the king, or queen, as the case may be. Yes. You can't tie church and state much closer together than that. No. no, And, you know, your taxes go to keep the church up and all that stuff. Anyway, the Burgess Oath basically required leaders uh, within the church to swear that the Church of Scotland was the true religion of the realm. So that's all fine and good until the secession movement. Once the church split, these ministers who split, a lot of them were like, well, I can't swear this oath anymore because we're not really part of the Church of Scotland. We've, we've split, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't agree with them. So, so they didn't feel like they could swear the oath. And this is what became the burger anti burger split. So mm-hmm. the point of all this is the anti burgers are the most uncompromising of the uncompromising men, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, Scottish immigration into the American colonies accelerated around this time uh, into mm-hmm. you know America. And, and it kept accelerating up until the revolution. In the new world, these religious divisions should not have mattered because, of course, you know, you're far removed from the Church of England and these old Catholic Protestant divides. Mm-hmm. But the divisions were old and the resentments kind of passed from one generation to the next, right? The first Reformed Church in Cambridge was established in 1769, but just like 16 years later, Coila's anti-Burger congregation started their own. So, uh, and they had a guy named Thomas Beveridge as their minister. Okay. Anti-Burgers, quote, sang psalms without any instrumental accompaniment and without aid of hymnals. They guarded against any perceived government interference in their religious affairs. They demanded strict observance of the Sabbath and enforced a personal code of righteous temperance every day of the week. In Cambridge, New York, no respectable person would ever be caught dancing, end quote. (laughs) Like footloose. It's it's exactly, it's exactly Footloose. footloose. Yeah, it's exactly this right. Footloose. This is Footloose. Yes. They um they would actually enforce travel bans 
uh, on the Sabbath. And there are all these, uh, it's actually kind of funny, there are all these letters of like New England travelers. We're talking about like the, the descendants of Puritans, right? So themselves are part of the very unfun crew, right? But, um, right. and they would complain about getting stranded in these Scottish inns between Saturday and like Saturday evening to Monday morning, because no one was allowed to travel on the Sabbath. So they're like, oh, but I'm just trying to get through town. They're like, tough. You know, you're here. You're here till Monday, right? Right. Yeah. Sit down. Sit down. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The spiritual high point of each year was Holy Communion, which required months of preparation. So congregants would read devotionals. They would fast. They would fast. um, They'd do some fasting. They'd spend time in self-reflection. Yeah. They would engage in all kinds of ritual (laughs) purification, including fasting. Yes. So basically, they didn't eat shit during this time period. Correct. Um, and the, the event took place every year in the late summer. Okay. For how many so, days did this go long? Uh, it usually took them a couple months to prepare. Oh, my gravy. Yeah, it took a couple months to prepare for communion. Think about that. So, okay. So during this time, yeah, it's, it's nuts. So during this time, uh, congregants uh, would have, like, ecstatic visions. They'd fall into trances. I bet they, they did. They'd hear voices. And a lot of these were, were usually... Me. they would be uh, a lot of times they'd be very uh sensual right uh visionaries would claim that they'd see blood pouring from christ's wounds i mean like gushing from his body or bread and water falling from the sky like manna from heaven (laughs) one woman reported being overcome with quote a longing desire to be unclothed and to be with christ so such experiences would like threatened the idea that scripture was the only authority for revelation, right? So these people strictly believe in the idea that the only revelation that has ever come from God is scripture, right? It's called sola scriptura, scripture alone. If people are having ecstatic visions, being touched by God, as it were, it challenges the idea that there is only one form of revelation, right? So if you really acknowledge these as the Holy Spirit revealing himself to these people, you have a bit of a problem because that's not the Bible. That's a new revelation, right? So theologically, this is a bit of a, a, a touchy area. It's a little sticky. But th- these experiences were tolerated, uh, though they were pretty discouraged. And they were really only tolerated like during the preparation for communion. And it was sort of a justified in that way. Like, well, you know, everybody's in this in this state of preparation and that's why it's okay. Okay. When communion day finally arrived, this is my favorite part. Ministers would uh, with get their congregation together, and then they did something called they would fence the table. That is, they would rattle off a list of all the characters who were unworthy to receive communion. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a community of like you know what thousand people, and they would like the ministers would sit down and say like rattle off name names people who were not uh, were not worthy to receive communion, but then they would also rattle off just like all of the kinds of people. Thieves, gluttons, liars, promiscuous dancers, you know, and so on. And by the way, promiscuous dancers, of course, in this town means dancing. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. The the promiscuous is an unnecessary adjective. Right. (laughs) So the process of going through the people who were unworthy usually took like an hour or more. So, So if you can imagine. Your your preacher just like barreling through all of the sins uh, that you could commit and naming names for like an hour. Uh, <laughs> just, just can't even. It's it's. You have to imagine like looking back on the past. Sometimes is like you have to imagine that you're you're actually witnessing like an alien culture. Like you you can't mm-hmm. even, like you can't mm-hmm. even put your brain in the same space. You right. I mean? Of course. Of course. You know. It's crazy. Yeah, there are, certain, there are certain things where you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I can see that's like a universal human experience. And then there's other stuff where you're just like, well, they're just, they're, they're lunatics. 
Right, yeah, right, like clear, right. Like, clear, like no reasonable person would put up with that. So finally, after all this, the, the worthy congregants got to experience the joy of communion with tearful ecstasy, and they, which would then continue all the way through the following evening when it all ended. So Robert Matthews, he, uh, he would have attended this, uh, his first one, at about 12 years old. You weren't really allowed to go before that. But he, of course, would have seen the preparations and been part of the, the piety every year, right? It would have been unavoidable. So... Uh, also was the watchful eye of all of Coila's residents. You, you had an obligation to sort of spy on your neighbors. Uh, you needed to keep the community safe from sin. So throughout the year, ministers and lay leaders alike uh, could arrive at anybody's house to demand public confession for even the smallest of transgressions. So some of the records describe, for example, uh, one farmer who was accused of profane swearing in his field when he injured himself. Another... Uh, <laughs> Another record chastised, yeah. Another chastised a woman for suggesting that a different woman was pregnant. I'm not even sure what that (laughs) means. Like, like I'm not sure if she said, you know, oh Mary Beth, you look like you are you are you with child? And Mary Beth was like, you know, hey, I gained ten pounds. Yeah, I'm I'm turning you in. in. Like I, I've gained ten pounds, and she made me feel really bad. I, I don't even know. Even doing things like wearing dirty clothes was evidence that your devotion was lacking. So, in 1804, when Robert was 15 or 16, church elders actually warned that some of the people within their ranks had gone out to hear preachers of other denominations who had made them look like narrow-minded bigots. End quote. And the elders then proceeded to like remind everyone, "You're not allowed to commune with other churches." Like, hey, those people made us look like bigots. So just as a reminder, you're not allowed to go to those places because, you know, you might get some wild ideas, I guess. That's right. All right. Modern day liberal technique. Right. Okay. (laughs) I want to um, I want to uh, to briefly mention that along with Quakers and Methodists, the anti-burgers were among the earliest slavery abolitionists. Right. So you have this weird dichotomy where like, you know, they they seem very traditional and all this, but they all but they also are on the right side of that issue for sure. Um, anti-burger churches even admitted black people into full church membership. But they were like Republicans back then. Uh, no, because the Democrats were the slave owners. There were no Republicans yet. Those didn't exist. Gotcha. And Democrats. That's all there were were Democrats. There was nothing else. There was no there were factions within the Democrats is really all that existed. The Federalist Party was dead. Um, there would be an emerging Whig party sort of around this time. But it's it's really there's just a Democratic the, Party. And they're, they're, the good guys they're, turned they're, into the Republicans. I don't. When it comes to politics, there there's never good guys per se. I mean, very rarely do you have good guys. Politicians should not be heroes. Like politicians should be uh, constantly hounded. If you're that close, if you have your hands on the levers of power, you should be sort of like just. They should never feel comfortable. They should never certainly be celebrated uh, as as heroes. I mean, you celebrate a, a thing they accomplish, but like under no circumstances should a, a politician be more than that. But uh, but that's kind of we're in a weird place now. So it's the same thing that gives us the like lanyard wearing liberal uh, class back culture um where it's just like oh you know you don't have to actually do anything to improve people's lives but if you get a good clap back in you're you've you've done your job it's what are you how does that how how does that do anything for us that's that's great i guess i love it that was that was funny and i i guess it was funny uh for like a second good good job right Um, right anyway but Republicans just want to murder everyone. So, I mean, it's a, it's a trade-off. So, so yeah, the Burger Churches, the anti-Burgers admitted Black people into the full church membership. But like other Calvinists, the uh, Coila faithful, they lived in a world full of anxieties under the kind of watchful eye of a jealous and angry God. So from childhood, uh, they vigilantly searched for outward signs of God's favor. I don't know what you know about Calvinism, but 
um, it's rooted in this idea that uh, God's will is unknowable and that everything has been predetermined, predestination, right? So you were either among the elect or among the damned on earth, and there's no way to know whether you were among the saved or the damned, right? But you, you were constantly on the lookout for outward signs that you might be among the saved. And the way that you could tell, of course, was you could tell based on the success or failure you were experiencing in your life, success or failure in business, family life, farming, etc. Right. So there's this um, this way that the idea of the, the 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 Protestant work ethic really comes from this. Like you have to, like the you work really hard, you try to succeed because if you succeed, it's proof that God loves you. But if you work really hard and you fail, it's proof that you're probably going to burn in hell. So you know there's a kind of weird thing there that really ties back to Calvinism. Successes, however, needed to be sort of tempered by perpetual self-purification or what uh, one observer referred to as a holy revenge upon the flesh or body for its former excesses. I love that quote. Um, the Antiburgers didn't have pew assignments, unlike other Presbyterians. So they had these egalitarian Sabbath services where, you know, the poor and the rich sat side by side. And But this was balanced with a very rigid patriarchal hierarchy at home. Fathers led households in morning and evening prayers and in all spiritual matters, including sort of child rearing and discipline. And paternal authority was reinforced by the all male ministers and the all male elders who would invite congregants to gather at the father's table to hear the father's testament at services, right? Uh, Regardless of their devotion, however, God's will was unknowable. So life was still going to be a series of trials and disappointments. Whereas Thomas Beveridge preached, the faithful must, quote, vigilantly watch and labor and fight, expecting to rest with Christ in glory, not on the way to it. He thrived in this community early on, and he even received like a special blessing from Reverend Beveridge when he was about seven. But it was unfortunately around that same time that Robert's parents both died, leaving him and nine siblings orphaned. It's, it's unfortunate. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. That means there's nine siblings. Out of those nine, how many kids. are male? Ten kids. Him and ten nine kids. him and nine siblings, so ten kids. How many of those are male? I'm not really sure. I really don't know. Uh, at least at least four there's at least four brothers. There's four brothers. At least four. Four brothers. Depending on the age, man, it's a terrible situation. It might go split we gotta get split up and then oh, yeah, they definitely get split up. So it's, it's just awful. Yeah, oh yeah. So here's here's what happens to Robert. Uh John okay. Maxwell, who is a, a church elder. Remember, he's about seven or eight at this time. So John Maxwell, who's a church elder, agreed to take care of Robert in exchange for his farm labor until he's 21 years old. So, so, so hey, boy, I'll take care of you as long as, as, long as you're my servant to, for the next 14 years. So, it's kind of like every does. parent when they say, hey, listen, you can stay here, but you're doing your chores. And you're part of your chores. You got to mow the lawn. You got to get the trash. You got to clean your room. You got to, you know, clean the attic out. You got to wash the cars. And as long as you do that, you get free room and board and meals. Yeah. Yep, I, I guess so. Right. I think it seems it strikes me as particularly odd to uh, negotiate a long-term labor contract with a seven-year-old, though. Uh, <laughs> given that my daughter is about to turn seven, and I think, okay, Ella, here's the deal: I will continue to take care of you until you're 21. But you know, you got to yeah, lay out you, the lay out the uh, work schedule. You have to run, the, <laughs> but you have to run the farm. Yeah. Here's your scope of work. Here's your scope of work until you're uh, about 13, and we're going to add to it. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, so so Robert loses his parents when he's seven, and then in 1798, when he's about 10, uh, Reverend Beveridge, he suddenly drops dead of dysentery. Uh, Robert grew tall, but he was never much of a farmer. He was sickly, and he suffered chronic nervousness. When he was 18, um, he moved in with another future church elder, a guy named Edward Cook, who taught Robert carpentry. I imagine John Maxwell was like, all right, boy, you're 18. You haven't worked on the farm because you've been sick. And, you know, I haven't killed you, but uh, get out. 
So anyway, so he learns carpentry. In 1808, Robert is 19 or 20, and he moved to Manhattan, working as a journeyman carpenter. He seems to be, uh, you know, uh, good at good at that. He lived in a working class east uh, on the working class east side on Henry Street, and uh, so in Manhattan, he attended actually a church that had been founded by Thomas Beveridge before Beveridge went to Coila. So you know there was a kind of connection there. And Matthews reconnected with a man named Andrew Wright, who was a cabinet maker who had lived for five years in Coila with his family, trying to avoid a yellow fever epidemic in Manhattan. So. Again, there was a kind of a connection in Manhattan. Cambridge is up sort of in the country between the Hudson River and the Green Mountains of Vermont. It was a little bit isolated for the time. You know what I mean? Anyway, Matthews was a skilled carpenter. He had no trouble finding work in the rapidly growing New York City. But uh, he did get fired a lot. He was not yes. really well prepared for the secular world. He was a fuck up. Well, he, uh, annoy- <laughs> he annoyed his co-workers by like constantly preaching at them and proselytizing. He would constantly complain um, about their drinking uh, and about their profanity and things like that, which is, you know, good on job sites. Um, so then they would then they would then go to the bosses and complain about him until he got fired. For one thing, uh, it's important to know, working class men like to drink a lot, like at all hours of the day, something that has exactly. comple- completely changed from then till now. Working class folks don't drink anymore. That has never happened since the 1830s. But um, but back then, it was a thing that people in the working class like to do. Sure. Very, very strange, I know. Right, right, right. Never happens anymore. <laughs> never happened since. It's, uh, it pretty much, it right. ended because of Robert Matthews. He convinced sure, them all. Sure, sure. Um, they fired, you know, after they got him fired, they said, boy, we feel really bad. And um, and then they yes. never, never drank again. Correct. So, okay, so partly the reason they drink is because booze was uh, unambiguously safer to drink than water. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Manhattan's fresh water comes from the Hudson and the East Rivers, but people just dump chamber pots in the rivers and the streets. Um, pigs roam. I'm the sure the fil- filtration wasn't quite as, as it is today either. I mean, it's there was talking no, about the there's no 1800s. filtration. There's no right. filtra- the filtration system are the oysters in the river. Like Disgusting. that is the yeah. So, so you have people just dumping chamber pots out in the streets and or dump, dumping them in the river. You have pigs roaming the streets, foraging through garbage. Horses everywhere. You've got fowl. You know, you know chickens and ducks. All of them just pissing and shitting in the streets. So that the waste just washed into the rivers. So mm-hmm. water is basically poison. People were constantly dying from dysentery or typhus at this time. And I don't know, whatever other waterborne illnesses you could get. So right. alcohol is just inherently safer. Drinking was also tied up with concepts that they had of uh, these conceptions of uh, manhood and masculinity. For a lot of working men, they, they actually believed drinking made them stronger. Like they had this real belief that it was like, so it was tied to like physical strength, like tied to physical yeah, virility. Yeah. That was um, proven true. I can't imagine why that is. I I know I've never been drunk and wanted to fight anyone. So I can't well, imagine. It was used <laughs> in the Tour de France before blood doping. They used alcohol. Yeah. It was actually shown on the, on the Lance Armstrong documentary about his cheating scandal. Sure, sure, sure. Back in the day, the Tour de France, they showed a video of them. and They would stop at a restaurant in France, and they, the riders would get off their bike and run in and grab bottles of wine and stuff. And they'd get on their bike, and they'd be chugging alcohol. And I'm yeah. thinking, what the hell are they doing? Chugging and the documentary, wine, guy, the, the documentary guy said it was like a form of blood doping back in the day. It was like the closest thing that they could get. I didn't understand it, but it that's it, that's what they were showing them doing. It was crazy. That is uh, that is actually quite sort of insane. Uh, I mean, that's it is ludicrous. Yeah, to imagine. Let's see. Working people have uh, a really deep connection, obviously, to drinking. 
they hated holier-than-thou preachy types. So Matthews struggled. Like, they do not like him. But he does manage to save a little money, and he made a living for three years uh, in Manhattan. But after three years of constant ridicule, work insecurity, and Manhattan's permissive culture, Robert Matthews kind of snapped. But rather than lash out at his co-workers or his bosses, which you might have expected, uh, on June 5th, 1811, he attacked Hester Matthews, who might have been his sister-in-law, it's hard to say, uh, and he was convicted of assaulting and beating her, quote, without a justification. But there was no sentence recorded for him. So we're not really sure what happened with all that. He was he was convicted. We know he was convicted, but he wasn't sentenced. Mm-hmm. When Coiler residents uh, learned of the assault, a couple of them came down and they basically rescued Robert from the city. And by January of 1812, he was back in Coila. And in February of 1812, Robert Thompson, who was a local wheelwright, he acquired for, wheelwright. He acquired for Robert uh, a house, a shop. Mm-hmm. And one acre of land next to the meeting house. And for all of that, he charged him uh, $1 in, quote, in consideration of love and affection and uh, that he felt for the boy. $1 in 1811 is about $22 today. So, sure. you know, pretty good deal. 22 bucks, you get a house, yep. you get a shop, yep. and you get an acre of land. That's not a good deal because it was like, uh, oh, things were so cheap then. That was an unheard of, like, cheap price then. You know, unheard of even, you know, obviously today, but like it was unheard of then too. Right, right. So as it turns out, despite having no experience, Matthew turned, Matthew's turned out to be a competent businessman, which is somewhat surprising, right? Given mm-hmm. given his hot-headed temper and, and his ideas. But in Coila, he, he does well. And pretty soon he's planning to expand his country store. So like other country dealers, he has to travel regularly to Manhattan and he purchases from the, the wholesalers that had started to pop up on Pearl Street, which is right down the financial district. It yep, was then, yep. it still is now. Anyway, um, yeah, not not too far from from where the New York Stock Exchange is even. Anyway, that's where they set, they had started to set up shop. So during these frequent trips, um, Robert would uh, visit the Wrights, and he would especially visit their teenage daughter, Margaret. Now, mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep it as teenage daughter because I'm not exactly sure how old she was. She wrote about him coming to Manhattan when she was 15. Wait, she she is in 1812. She's somewhere between say 15 and 18 years old, something like that. I only say that because I don't I don't want to make him out to be creepier than he is. Okay, okay. Plenty of time for that later. Anyway, uh, so he starts visiting the rights, uh, and especially like I said, their teenage daughter. And in 1813, just a year later, the two of them are married. And in 1814, their first son Robert was born. So now hold on, let me stop you there. Yeah. How normal is this back in that time for a teenager to marry a 30-something-year-old guy? He wasn't 30. He, he, was, he was, in 1814, he was 26. So he was, okay, so he was yeah, early 20s, and she was maybe 18 or 19. So really, oh, okay, about, so it's not that. Yeah, I got 20, you. 23, 24, and that's okay. very normal, very normal. Okay, um, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, I thought yeah, it was, very, I thought she was like 15 and he was like 30 or something. No, I no, like, no. Uh, I mean, she. I got you. I got you. She was, she would have been, a, at, at the very least, she would have been 16 or 17 and he would have been like right. 24. So, right. I mean, again, like it's for that mm-hmm. time, for that time period, you know, even 16 or 17 and, and like 22, 23 would be, a, would be okay. Normal. Yeah, normal. Um, it could be a lot worse. I mean, for, it, would, it was certainly yep. a lot worse for a lot of girls. Uh, although, you know, things aren't going to be great for Margaret, as you'll find out. But I don't want to tip my hand, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did, I did hint at it in the beginning. 
So at age, uh, at just 26 years old, Robert was an independent patriarch in good standing in his community and in his church. And in the following years, Margaret had at least six children. Again, sometimes records get a little spotty about some of these things. And Robert was known as a kind and affectionate husband. He was well-liked throughout the community. And uh, even though he continued to kind of exhibit some occasional odd behavior, he lived piously and He did have a little bit of a taste for a few extravagant items of clothing. But other than that, he demonstrated a kind of modest, you know, pious life, right? Right. Um, Right. You know, all right. It's not like they had like nice cars or shit shit like that. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the the dawn of of sort of the availability of luxury goods. We will kind of start to sort of have this stuff becoming more available. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Like they didn't have currency. Yeah, they had currency. Yeah, but it was pre-Civil War dollar. Yeah, I mean... So that's different. That's different. There was there wasn't lots a, well, of lots of forgeries. Oh, and yeah, it was all a, there, there were a individual, lot of yeah, like all individually the, bank printed. Yeah, shit, individual you know? banks would sort of issue their own notes and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was a it was the Wild West, like no no question. Um, it was the Wild West of money, no no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you had you had. Thanksgiving loans and I mean it, it was a, a it was a wild time because you know you go in to get a loan you're just like hey I've got a a note here from another guy that says I'm a good guy can I borrow like a thousand dollars to do a thing and they're like well if that guy says you're okay here you go you know right um, right anyway most of the people who would have seen Robert Matthews at this time would have just assumed that he was you know one of the elect of John Calvin's you know predestination mm-hmm. and you know and all that he's got a good life things are good. So most Cambridge residents were subsistence farmers um, at this time. Matthews was one of the only people who kind of tied Coyla's countryside to this wider market economy emerging in Manhattan, right? Now, the end of the war, that is the War of 1812, brought a wave of optimism in 1815. Uh, Westward expansion and the end of the British naval blockade promised to open a wider world of trade to enterprising Americans. And initially, a lot of people prospered. Unfortunately, the rapid shift to the market economy caused patterns of work to change and introduce the boom and bust economic cycle. For Robert Matthews, the boom times from 1812 to 1815 gave way to his bust in 1816. As far as I could find, a few historians seem to blame Matthews' failure on him wanting to expand his store too rapidly and then being plunged into bankruptcy when his credit got shrunk by the wholesalers that he was dealing with. Okay, sure, this is true. But there's another explanation that I haven't found anybody else talk about, and I'm sure it played a, a role 1816 was known as the year without a summer. Year without a summer. Is that because of something I can't remember? In April of uh, 1815, uh, this volcano. Oh, it went off and it clouded the sky. That's right. And it was dark all summer. Yeah, but more than that. I remember reading about that or hearing about it. I had never heard about this particular uh, This particular volcano. This is Mount Tambor in the Dutch East Indies uh, or Indonesia. And it erupted. Yeah. The, erupti- uh, the eruption was the largest volcanic eruption in at least 1,300 years. It is the most powerful eruption ever recorded in human history. Holy uh, shit. So, so again, that's not to say that it's the worst eruption in the existence of humanity. It's the oldest one that was right. ever recorded, right? So at least 71,000 people were killed. Uh, the detonation on April 10th was heard over 1,600 miles away. And the initial ash from the explosion fell over 800 miles away. So put that in perspective, 800 miles is a volcano erupts in Maryland and it falls in my yard here in Florida. Right, right, right. right. It's, it's crazy. 
So the eruption caused, you know, a volcanic winter. And so for whatever it's worth, also, there, there was a big eruption the year before, and then uh, there, uh, like five or six eruptions in just the previous like five or six years. So the overall global average temperature dropped by one full degree Celsius, which is uh, unbelievable. Now, it only did that for one year. And that the was, whole, what do you mean? Where? The whole Earth? Worldwide, the average. Worldwide, the average, I got right, you. So when you, when you average all the, uh, the, the, you know, the global temperature worldwide, you take all the averages and figure it all out together. For, for that one year, the, the temperature dropped by a full degree Celsius. I mean, like, it's, it's yep. an astonishing impact for just, like, one year. Even though uh, the eruption was in Indonesia, I've got another another view of this. I mean, it's just Holy like, shit. I mean. That thing it, is monstrous. It's, Damn. I'm, it's just really probably the scariest. It's like the scariest natural feature I've ever looked at. Wow. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. That's pretty impressive. Pretty unbelievable. Oh. Where were we? So um, the worst impacts were felt in Europe and in the northeastern part of the United, of North America. So in Europe, uh, they had food riots, arson, and looting occurred all throughout Europe. People carried uh, bread or blood signs as they marched on bakeries and grain markets. Germany experienced the worst violence in Europe since the French Revolution. They're going to do that here soon. Yeah, uh, yeah. it caused the uh, the worst famine on mainland Europe uh, in the entire 19th century. And the famine caused typhus to spread because of malnourishment. In Ireland alone, more than 65,000 people died between 1816 and 1819. In Italy, red snow fell throughout the year. In Hungary, the snow was brown. That's funny. All right, so here's a crazy side note. In June of 1816... Lord Byron, uh, John William Polidori, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Mary Shelley were all together vacationing in Geneva. Um, so they're all in Geneva. And because of the constant rainfall, they're basically stuck inside. Now, again, you know, they're traveling with Lord Byron. And, you know, they are, they're probably staying in a castle in Geneva. So they're stuck inside for most of their trip. While they're inside stuff, and, you know, they're in Geneva, they're in Switzerland, you know, they're right there in Germany, right by Germany. They're reading things like, um, you know, grim fairy tales and all these German Black Forest ghost stories, uh, the Phantasmagoria and all that. So Lord Byron proposes a contest between the four of them, since they're all writers, to see who could write the scariest story. Yeah. Okay. Right, so By- right, Byron right. proposes this. And out of this comes Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein or the modern okay. Prometheus. Lord Byron right, right, writes right. Uh, writes something called A Fragment, which Polidori used to uh, as the inspiration to write the only book that he's ever been famous for, which was called The Vampire, which was the precursor that Bram Stoker read in order to write Dracula. Dracula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. Byron also wrote a poem called Darkness. So because of all, because of the year without without summer, we've got Frankenstein, and we end up with Dracula. And then uh, Byron wrote this poem, Darkness, which I I really found captured the kind of moment very well. I had a dream which was not all a dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless. The and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day that was beautiful brian the u in the u.s the impact was uh the most severe from virginia to new england mm-hmm. some regions experienced so much rain that crops rotted in the fields the rain also reduced uh the available firewood yep. um you know you couldn't dry them out the wood was too was just too wet firewood is the only source of heat right like if you only right. way to cook your food it is a problem if there's no firewood correct in may Frost killed most crops throughout parts of, Ma- of Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and upstate New York. In Albany, it snowed on June 6th. What? In, yeah. In Cape May, uh, New Jersey, five straight uh-huh. nights of frost in late June caused severe crop damage. 
throughout, yes, I bet. throughout yeah, oh, yeah. Throughout New England, only about 25% of grain was usable for food, and the rest was so rotten, they couldn't even use it to feed animals. In Lebanon, New York, farmers reported that the ground froze solid on June 9th, and by June 12th, they had to completely replant their fields. So, holy shit. Just think about that. Like, on June 9th, you lose everything, and you have to replant your fields June 12th, and hope that you can get everything grown so you can eat by, you know, again, right. Lebanon, New York, yeah. right? I mean, so they have an early winter, you know. Anyway, then after they replanted on June 12th, on July 7th, it got so cold that farmers reported that everything stopped growing for a while. Right. In the uh, the Berkshires in Massachusetts, where, you know, the rich people go now, they had frost on August 23rd. So as did like the whole surrounding area. In July and August, people reported lake and river ice as far south as Pennsylvania. What? Yeah, it's nuts. In Maryland, uh, just like Hungary and Italy, Maryland reported variously bluish, brown, and yellow snow in April and May. I mean, now we can explain the yellow snow pretty easily, but I don't know about the blue and brown. (laughs) Frost was reported in Virginia on August 20th and 21st. Near the summer's end, Virginia newspapers reported that corn uh, crops would be one half to two thirds lower than what was needed. Now, of course, Some crops fared better than others. I mean, there are just some crops that can handle cold weather better than others. But the grains that were necessary to feed animals, make bread to feed the lower classes, were the hardest hit. Prices for these particular foodstuffs absolutely soared. For example, the price (laughs) of the oats rose from 12 cents a bushel in 1815, Mm -hmm. which is about $1.78 today. Right. The next year, in 1816, it was 92 cents a bushel, which is like $14.69 today. So it went from a dollar seventy-eight to fourteen sixty-nine yes. a year. Yes, massive inflation. To put that in perspective, a bushel of oats today costs about seven bucks. Right. So It'd be like it costs, seventy. It costs double what it costs today. Like right. Right. in today's right. dollars, like in today's, today's dollars, dollars right. it yeah, costs yeah, yeah. double in eighteen sixteen. It's crazy. Um, so okay, so the devastation of the year without summer seems to have been mainly on the eastern seaboard, right? Which of course led to a mass migration of people in a bunch of directions, but. Sure. Uh, people especially fled from New England into like the western parts of upstate New York and the Ohio River Valley um, because it didn't seem to be as bad the farther west into New York you went and into Ohio and all that. The population of Ohio grew from just over 230,000 in 1810 to more than 580,000 just 10 years later in 1820. So it more than doubled in just a decade. New York State grew from about 960,000 to over 1.5 million in the same period. Between 10 and 15,000 moved out, moved west away from Vermont alone in 1816, including Joseph Smith's family. And that's when a young Bernie <clears throat> Sanders yes, got a young, his start. And young Bernard Sanders was born <laughs> yeah. in 1816. Yes. yes. Um, the price of oatmeal is outrageous. I demand we have oatmeal care for all. <laughs> Okay, so indeed, you know, if the religious revivalism that we're going to talk about in Western and Central New York, in what becomes known as the Burned Over District, was at least partially fueled by this this mass migration of people into the area. Um, and of course, I think probably the the impact of the year without summer, when something like that happens, a lot of people turn to religious, you know, uh, explanations for things, right? Like, sure. you know, you start to wonder if God is punishing the world when so, you have a year without summer. You can see a lot of that in. Um, 
a couple years of pandemic, a lot of people wondering, sure. you know, my God, my God, why has now forsaken us? You know, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing, right? So you you do have a, a kind of there are these sort of um, crises of faith that that pop up in in times of crisis, right? Okay. Of course. So as for Robert Matthews. Uh, you know, again, he went bankrupt that same year. So, uh, again, it's never really, there's no evidence to suggest that this, the year without summer directly caused this, but it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't have had a, a huge impact. His reputation was in tatters. And of course, he lives in a community where whether you are going to hell uh, is evidenced by whether or not you're successful in business. So when he went bankrupt, his reputation was destroyed and his friends like abandoned him. So he had no choice, really, but to return to Manhattan with his family to to try and start over. So he worked as a journeyman carpenter, and for three years in New York, he managed to recoup pretty much everything he had lost. Unfortunately, a couple things happened. In the fall of 1816, uh, after he arrived in Manhattan, the Matthews' oldest son, who was the two-year-old Robert, died of some unknown illness. I'm sure back then the the percentage was a lot different than it is today about kids Mm -hmm. living beyond. Well, for sure. But then, right. like, he's gone bankrupt, and mm-hmm. and now, you know, uh, to, to be able to just get the what's supposed to be, like, the cheapest food, something like oats, something you, mm-hmm. is so cheap you feed to your horses, mm-hmm. uh, is now, now like, you know, basically costs, like, what a, a, a kidney would cost on the black market, right? Like, right. You right. know, you know, so you can't buy food. You know what I mean? So you're just making do with whatever whatever you could possibly make do on. You know, you're bankrupt. You have no food. Your kid gets sick, and it's like... There's no direct evidence tying the the eight you know the eighteen sixteen year without summer to his son's death, but like it's hard to imagine it wouldn't have played you know that it wasn't involved like that that wasn't mm-hmm. part of it. Okay, mm-hmm. so anyway, so the son dies in eighteen sixteen. Two years later, their second son died. You know, he's been in Manhattan now three years. He's been working. He's recouped everything he lost. He opened his own business as a master carpenter and a house joiner. But then right after he opened his business, he fell ill and he was out of work. He was unable to work for several months. He, he literally just started the business and then can't work. The money dwindles. He loses the business and the family is left destitute. Okay. When he, and then when he finally recovered, but he, I shouldn't say that he was left destitute. When he finally recovered, they were teetering on the edge. But he basically recovered. And right after he recovered, the very first financial economic panic hit the United States. The Panic of 1819 devastated the U.S. economy and Manhattan suspended all construction projects. So by 1820, Robert Matthews was financially ruined and he would never again achieve economic independence. So at this time, aside from the part where he like beat up a woman uh, one time, he's a kind of a sympathetic figure. I mean, he's, sure. he's, he's sure. tried and failed, but it hasn't really been his fault. Like things have kind of happened around him, whatever. Anyway, so it was around this time, uh, Robert Matthews began to experience violent mood swings, terrible headaches, and he started having fits of anger. Right. According to his wife, Margaret, when he was afflicted, quote, he complained that his mind was very confused, that it seemed as if he should lose his senses, end quote. She also said he would talk very harshly to me, punish his children for the least thing and beat them very severely. He was he was an asshole. Yeah, he's spiraling into dark in darkness when, by chance, he attended an African Methodist church service and found some relief there. Methodists had uh, carved out a kind of niche community in Manhattan in the 1780s. Uh, especially among the city's free and enslaved Black communities. Um, By the 1790s, 20% of the 700 or so Methodists in the city were Black. Even though Methodist preachers welcomed Blacks into the congregation, they enforced strict segregation and other kind of rules just for Black worshippers. So 
after again, black congregants sent a number of polite complaints and they went unaddressed. The group won permission from the bishop to form their own congregation with their own black preachers in 1796. And they started building a church in 1801. So by the 1820s, they had over 700 members, which if you recall, that's how many Methodists there were when they sort of joined, right? So, you know, they're growing at the same sort of pace, right? Uh, at the African Zion Church, which is called African Zion Church, Robert Matthews witnessed believers enthralled with the Holy Spirit. They were convulsing and dancing in ecstatic worship. Um, yeah, so so even though he was really excited about all this, Margaret started to feel a bit uh, panicked in her soul about, uh-huh. you know, other than just, uh, it's weird enough that he was like praising Methodists and started going to services. His behavior came even stranger. He he kept going there, but then he decided he was no longer a Christian. Now mm-hmm. he decided he was a Hebrew, just like mm-hmm. another carpenter from Judea. Uh, he he was a, a Hebrew carpenter. He was also inspired by this guy Mordecai Manuel Noah, who was uh, the Jewish editor of the National Advocate, um, the newspaper, and he was a political insider who was aligned with Martin Van Buren. And you've probably heard of Tammany Hall, but at the time, Tammany Hall was like barely functioning. But that was Martin Van Buren who, who built Tammany Hall. He built it up. Anyway, so he was allied with uh, with Martin Van Buren against the Clinton political dynasty of New York. Those Clintons have always been around. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Noah called and they were probably himself- doing their same shenanigans back there, too. Well, I bet you people were dying mysteriously and shit like mm-hmm. that. Well, I'm sure they were, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, Noah called himself uh, the judge of Israel and the Messiah of the Jews. And he had these plans to build a Jewish homeland on Grand Island in the Niagara River. And Noah kind of openly pined for an American Moses who could lead the Jewish people to a new promised land where they'd be free from persecution from the Gentiles. Robert believed that Noah needed his help, and he swore to build a, a model of Solomon's temple at Ararat. In Noah, that's Noah's proposed community. It was called Ararat. Mm-hmm. Um, after the mountain where uh, the Noah's Ark uh, supposedly landed, right? Uh, anyway, at the community at Ararat was a few years away. And when Matthews was able to work again, remember, he was sick, um, mm-hmm. the family returned to Washington County and they lived sort of a variety of places. They lived uh, for a while at Argyle, which was near one of Robert's sisters. They lived in Fort Miller. And then in 1824, they moved to Sandy Hill with one of Robert's brothers. Okay. Uh, work kind of came in fits and spurts for Robert, but he talked constantly of, of Ararat and uh, his mood swings became ever more common. So in 1825 or 1826, Matthews traveled to, uh, Robert Matthews traveled to Albany, and he had no fa- no contact with his family for three months. Uh, he finally sent money to them with instructions for Margaret to bring the family up and meet him in Albany immediately. So she packed up their daughter, Isabella, and then they had three or four sons. It's a little unclear. And she brought the few possessions that they still owned, and they moved yet again to Albany, New York. In the meantime, uh, the guy that Matthews had become uh, kind of enthralled by, this uh, Mordecai uh, Manuel Noah, his grand plans uh, for that, that Jewish um, kind of utopia called Ararat, his plans were scuttled so that Noah could instead focus on politics. In fact, he would actually be the guy that runs Tammany Hall in 1827 and 28. So uh, we don't know how Robert Matthews might have reacted to the news that this um, Ararat was, was you know being uh, shut down. But we know that over the course of 10 years, Robert Matthews had gone from economic independence to embarrassing destitution twice. 
He'd been a practicing anti-Burger Presbyterian. He found solace in African Methodism and Judaism. Mm -hmm. His hero, this Mordecai Noah, chose profane politics over, you know, some sort of religious idealism. We know that Matthew's family lost two sons, and they had moved at least five times over 10 years. But Margaret moved to Albany really hopeful that finally she might have some stability in her shaken, rather lousy world. So, uh, and there's a lot of reasons to think that. Hey, it's Brian here. Thanks for listening so far. Uh, The episode ran a bit long. We decided to clip it in two. So thanks for listening so far. We hope you'll join us for the second part.